with the season of Advent, doing a, a new short sermon series. And we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and what he says about the birth of Jesus. And so, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 1, calling the series Behold Your King. And hopefully what it captures is this sense of of expectation and longing, this sense of waiting that Advent is supposed to create in our hearts, that Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. And we're going to talk about what that, what that means, that Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for, the king maybe that wasn't that was looked for but was unexpected at the same time. And we're going to start at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to read the, uh, the first 17 verses. I'm going to uh, give, you, give you fair warning that this is one of those chapters in the Bible. This is one of those passages in the Scriptures uh, that, are very, that it's hard to read, uh, very repetitive, and so you're going you're gonna to want to tune out at like two verses in because it says the same thing over and over and over again. But don't worry, just hang in there and we'll explain what, that, what, what this means, what Matthew means. And so Matthew 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation. And Nation, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Fascinating, isn't it? And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, you have given even this list of names, this 
family history as your word. And it's here for a reason. And your word tells us that it's here for our instruction, for our correction, for our training, that there is value in this long list of names. The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write it. And so it is inspired for our eternal benefit, for our good. God, would you bless the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of your word? Would you make much of this family history in our lives, that we would be forever changed, that we would look to you and trust in you and wait for you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So nothing says Merry Christmas like a long list of names that you can't pronounce. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like going to the courthouse and reading a deed. That's really exciting, scintillating stuff. Only like two people in the whole world would want to do that. It's passages like this that that make reading the Bible a challenge. If you were going to start reading the Bible for the first time, maybe some of you are. When you get to the new year, you want to read the Bible. You get if you were to if you were to start in Matthew chapter one by verse seventeen, odds are you might have given up um, because because of passages like this. But it matters. Matthew thought that it was important to start his story of Jesus here. So it matters to, to Matthew, and it, it matters to God. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, the Christian Bible has two parts. It has the Old Testament, which is the story of the beginning, and it is the story of God's promise to Abraham and how that plays out in Israel, the Old Testament people. And then you get to the New Testament that deals with Jesus and the church and the end. And in God, for, for God's reasoning, he found it important to start the New Testament, the second part of his scriptures, this way. And so we need to ask, what are we supposed to learn from this? Why is this here? Why should it matter to me? And when you think about it, maybe it's not as odd as it first seems. I mean, think about the, the questions, the first few questions you ask somebody when you meet them for the first time. After, your, after their name, right, you usually ask, well, what do you do? Where are you from? And that where are you from question is not really just a geography question, is it? It's a, it's a genealogy question. You're not just asking about a place, but you're actually asking about that person's history, about their family, who they were. It's about your beginnings. And every name in that Family tree has a history, doesn't it? And your family, if it's like my family, has its really high points and its really low points. And Matthew's doing the exact same thing. Matthew is giving us Jesus' family tree, his beginnings, where Jesus comes from, from a human perspective. And while there are some high points... There are also some very low points. And here's the point behind it all. This is what Matthew is telling us. That Jesus is born into a broken humanity to keep God's promises and to save us from our brokenness. Jesus is born into, this is what this long list of names that I can't pronounce and that you can't pronounce. 
Jesus is, what that's telling us, what each one of those names tells us is that Jesus is born into a broken humanity. And he's born into a broken humanity, one, to keep God's promises. And we're going to talk about that. And part of keeping those promises is to save us from our brokenness. To save, to save the very broken humanity that he's born into. I mean, you would like to think, right, that, that I mean, when you hire a, a consultant or an expert, somebody who's going to turn the, the ship around, well, just think, about, just think about our most recent election. The reason, I think when you get down to the root of it, the reason why... Donald Trump was elected as president is that there were enough people in the country who wanted an outsider, somebody who was not a politician, somebody who could come from the outside in and turn things around. That was, that was the express desire of many. And so I think that's usually what we think of, maybe even when we think of Jesus, that Jesus comes from on high, which he does. He's the son of God who's come from heaven but I want you to think about what that means for Jesus. Yes, he comes from the outside, but he's also born of a woman. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel, that, that God doesn't just put on a man suit and enter and, 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 and say, all right, I'm going to fix everything, just let me wave my magic wand. Know that God himself is actually born. I mean, exits the birth canal and takes a breath of oxygen. That's what, that's what God does in order to save humanity. He becomes one of us. And that means that he has a family history, and it's not all roses. We're going to look at this uh, in a couple of different ways. First, we're going to see that God how in this story, in these first 17 verses, and all of these names, that God keeps his promises. Look at how Matthew starts. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy, or the generations, or the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, with the Old Testament, next to Moses David and Abraham are like the Jewish Hall of Fame. I mean, if you were going to name, if you, if you are Jewish and you're going to name a child, you want to name them Moses, David, or Abraham, right? Those are your top three, okay? Everybody looks up to David, the great king, and Abraham as the father of the whole nation. And these names are important not just because they're great men like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Their names are important because of the promises that God made to those men. If you were to go back to Genesis 12, you would find God choosing and meeting this man named Abram. And telling him, Abram, this is in Genesis chapter 12, follow me. And here's what he says. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, who will become Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. No pressure. 
Abram, you are the conduit, you are the pipeline of God's blessing to the rest of the world. Whoever taps into the, to the Abraham pipeline receives God's favor. Whoever rejects the Abraham pipeline is rejected by God. That's you, Abraham. In you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. My blessing will come through you and through your descendants. And Abraham grows and he becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. And then a thousand or so years later, Israel has become a great nation, 12 tribes, big nation, and they need a king. And the king that they choose, Saul, is a bad king. He's a proud man and he doesn't listen to God. And so God chooses for them a shepherd boy named David. And he's the great king. Maybe you've heard stories about him. He's, he defeats Goliath, the giant. He's called a man after God's own heart. And in the book 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. Now, that may not seem like much of a promise to you or to me because we're not familiar with kings and, and what that means. But in David's day, in the Bible's day, if you didn't have a king, you were nobody. You, you couldn't really be taken seriously as a nation if you didn't have a king. In the same way in modern day, right, if you don't have a really great military, you can't be taken seriously as a nation, right? If you don't have a great economy, you can't be taken seriously as a nation. And so for God to promise David, and, and there was always upheaval. I mean, we change leaders every four to eight years. But in the case of a monarchy, if you look back over world history, you'll see that, right, Usually, you didn't, get, you didn't get to end your monarchy on your own terms, right? Just look at the history of Europe. Usually, kings were killed by somebody else. Either they were killed in battle or somebody slipped in at night and assassinated them. It was a pretty gruesome deal. And then that meant somebody else's family took over. And so it's a big deal for God to come to David and say, I'm going to ensure that one of your descendants from your line will always sit on this throne. Nobody's going to take it from them. Nobody, no other family will get to rule my family but one of yours. That was God's promise to David. And so we're going to take the blessing of the nations to, to Abraham, and it's now joined to this idea of a forever king over God's people. Isaiah 11.1 this was after the kingdom had begun, had begun to fail and God was going to cut down the tree of David. Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah prophesies this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That even though things look grim for David's house, I will ensure that the tree keeps growing. And so what Matthew is saying in just this first verse, what Matthew is saying is that after all of these hundreds and thousands of years of waiting, 
God keeps his promise. That, that the one we've been waiting for, you see, uh, that word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. That's actually a royal title. It means anointed one. The kings were anointed to keep uh, to, for, for God's purposes. And so what Matthew is saying is that the promise keeper, the real true promise keeper is finally here. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the forever king who will bring blessing to the whole world is here. This is his story. And at least one thing we can glean from that is, is this. God works in his own good time. But he always keeps his word. I want you to think about this. Abraham died and he never saw the fulfillment of God's promise to him. He never saw, he had one child. And he never saw the the many nations that God promised him. He never saw it. Not in his lifetime. David died. He, no way of knowing if his sons were going to stay on the throne. I mean, he knew that Solomon was going to be on the throne after him, but after that, who knows? What's going to happen? Neither of those men saw the fulfillment of God's promises to them. In fact, nor did anyone else in their lifetimes. Thousands of years later, God keeps his promise. And I have a hard time waiting for a week. God's people languished in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. But God kept his promise to them. How many generations in 400 years lived and died never seeing the fulfillment? God is not slow as some count slowness. He's keeping time. And so, in a, in a world and a culture that lives at faster than a microwave pace, right, where I, get, where I get frustrated because I can't stream the video at as quick a rate as I would like to stream the video, I need to be reminded that God always keeps his promises in his good time. In fact, the Old Testament, that first part of the Bible, ends with a question mark. The kingdom has been wiped out. And it started back, but no Messiah, no king. And so there's kind of this question mark at the end of the Old Testament. Well, God, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep your word? Are you going to make good on your promise? And the answer is yes, but wait. Why do bad people always seem to get the upper hand? God says, just wait. Why can't I ever seem to get ahead? God says, just wait. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. There's a second thing we see as we go through these family names, as we go through this history, and it's that God keeps his promises despite human Failure, despite human failure and sin. Let's just look um, at some of these names. We'd like to think that Jesus comes from a proud family history. I mean, that's what you want in a king, is somebody who has a, a royal pedigree. It's very respectable. 
But the more you dig, the more you see that Jesus' family has plenty of skeletons in the closet. We would say Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family. Let's just go down the list. There in, uh, let's see, verse 3. That's how far we get. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Let me tell you a little bit about Tamar. You can find her story in Genesis uh, 38. Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. That's right. He slept with his daughter-in-law. And here's how that happened. Judah had two sons, both married to Tamar, and neither one of them were righteous good men. And before they had sons, God struck them down. And so Judah refused to give his third son to Tamar as a wife, right? She's, she's damaged goods, and so I'm not he, – he didn't tell her this, but he just said, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to risk my third son on whatever's wrong with Tamar. And so in Tamar's day, if you didn't have a husband and you didn't have sons – you were going to be destitute. You were going to be poor. There was no one to provide for you. And so what Tamar did was she disguised herself as a prostitute and met Judah by the side of the road. And you can imagine what happened next. And when Tamar realizes that she is pregnant, she sends for Judah. And then Judah realizes what he has done. And actually realizes that his sin was the greater because he did not fulfill his responsibility as a provider for Tamar. That's Jesus' family. Okay? And that's just verse 3. Scoot on down a little bit. We see in verse 5 that Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. If you don't know her, her story... Rahab is also not an Israelite. She's not part of God's special people. Rahab, her story you find in Joshua 2, the Old Testament book of Joshua 2 and chapter 6. Rahab, see, uh, in order to get into the promised land, God's people have to conquer the fortress of Jericho. And so they, t- they send two spies into Jericho to, to get the lay of the land. And while they're there, they have to be hidden. And so Rahab hides them. So let's know what Rahab's profession was. She was a prostitute. She is the one who hides the spies. And in return, her life is spared when the city falls. So here we have a Gentile prostitute taking her place in Jesus' family. Then there's Ruth. There in verse 5 as well. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, Ruth, as far as we can tell, is a godly woman. There's a whole book named after her. But Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites were under a curse because of their treatment of the Israelites. A Moabite was not allowed in God's presence to the tenth generation. And so they were despised. Moabites were despised people. And yet here, there's a Moabite in Jesus' family history. Drop down a little bit to verse 
6. Second half of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Wait. David had a child with someone else's wife? That's right. And if you go to 2 Samuel 11, that's where you'll find this story. It's actually worse than you could think. You see, David's supposed to be out with his generals fighting a war, but instead he's lounging on his couch at home. He sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. Why in the world that was an option, I don't know. But he sees this beautiful woman bathing on the roof. He asks about her, and he finds out, oh, that's Uriah's wife. Uriah, one of your mighty men, one of your chosen, one of your best commanders. David says, all right, I want her. And so he has Bathsheba is her name. She doesn't get mentioned by name here. Bathsheba is brought to the palace. You can imagine what happens. And uh, she gets pregnant. And when David finds out, rather than come clean, he decides. This is King David, the great king, the one who beat Goliath, the man after God's own heart. David, rather than come clean, decides he's going to cover his tracks. And he's going to do that by having Uriah killed on the field of battle. So now not only has David taken another man's wife, but now he's also had her husband killed. That's Jesus' family. And then after that, you have Rehoboam, Joram, Ammon, Manasseh, Jeconiah, all wicked kings. Some of them had godly fathers. And so that tells you that grace does not always run in families. And that as parents, we ought to pray often for our children. But then the greatest failure of all, verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. If David's reign was the high point, the exile to Babylon is the low point. In that moment, the empire of Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, carries away the king and most of the people. It was the worst possible thing that could happen to a nation. Psychologically, emotionally, socially, this is the low point in Israelite history. And all of it was brought about because of the failure of the previous generations. All those wicked kings, they were responsible for Babylon. All the sins of all the people were responsible for, the, for Babylon. So even in exile, God is keeping his promise. He told them, if you turn from me, I will turn from you. And he did. But that, left, but that left them asking, what about God's good promises to us? What about your promises to David that you're a son will always sit on the throne? There's no more throne. It's been burned. What about your promises to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through us? There's no more us. We're scattered. What about your promise, Lord what are you going to do, Lord? And so Matthew's story, Jesus' family 
story is a reminder, not simply that God keeps his promises, but that God, God works through fallen, broken, flawed human people. Jesus' family reveals just how corrupt we are. That even the great King David is not immune to sin. And that David's sin cost him, and it cost his family, and it cost his people. But Jesus' family history also reveals just how deep God's mercy and grace will extend. Because the story doesn't end at the deportation to Babylon. The people come back. And then we have 14 more generations of people whose names, for the most part, we don't know. Unimportant people. People who lived and died and The only time they ever get mentioned in any history is right here. They're part of Jesus' family tree. And we see that God not only keeps his promises, and that he keeps his promises despite human sin and failure, but he keeps his promises in unexpected ways. Four women are mentioned in this genealogy. In the ancient world, women were not important. They were not reputable. They were not even allowed as witnesses in court. Right? If, you had a woman, if, a, if a woman's testimony was all you had, you had to go find a man. She did not count. But she counts to Jesus. Four women. Four Three Gentile women, not even part of Israel, not even part of the people of God. Women from outside are Jesus's great, 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 great grandmothers. And so when someone tells you that Christianity favors men, point them to Matthew chapter 1. Point them to Matthew chapter 1, and you tell them that God's grace is not just for the established people, but it's for the people outside. It's for prostitutes, and Moabites, and women, these people who, are, who were despised. God's grace is for despised people. It's for the outsiders who get to be brought in. They're a part. Of Jesus's family. God keeps his promises in unexpected ways. Because of all of the forgettable people. That in this list. Who we don't know. Not even sure. What they did. Where they lived. Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that. They were probably just mundane. Faithful people. And God used them. To bring about his blessing for the world. And so we get to the gospel in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, a young virgin, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called Christ, anointed, Messiah, the promised one. Jesus came to rescue and redeem all of them, the good, the bad, the ugly. The good, who in reality weren't all that good. The bad, who weren't so bad that they were beyond the reach of God's grace. And the ugly, who would have been left out in the cold if not for God's mercy. Jesus' family history is a story of brokenness and dysfunction. And Jesus allows himself to be born into that. Think about that. The Son of God, who has wielded omnipotent authority from before the world began, did not choose a healthy family. I don't know that he really would have had any choices if he did. Jesus chose to be born into this family, into this humanity, so that he could redeem this humanity. Jesus comes into our brokenness to rescue us out of it. And so I guess it is true. Nothing says Merry Christmas like a long list of names that you can't pronounce. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you keep your promises. That you keep your promises in unexpected ways. Ways that we wouldn't have chosen. Ways that we wouldn't have seen. That you use outsiders. That you use prostitutes. That you use utterly broken people. Bad people who do good things and good people who do bad things. That you keep your promises despite human failure. That even in the greatest moments when all seems lost, there is still the promise. And so Matthew's story, Jesus' story, our story begins where the old story left off. The old story left by our unfaithfulness. The old story left in a question mark by our lack of obedience and faithfulness to you. Jesus, that is where your story begins. And that is where our new story begins. That you are rescuing and claiming and renewing a people for your own possession. Sinful people. Cleansing us and making us new. We thank you for the good news of Matthew 1. We thank you for all of these names that tell the story again and again of your faithfulness through brokenness and of the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who has come to make all things new. Help us this month as we approach Christmas to behold our King and to fall down and worship at His feet. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.